Hello and welcome to episode 79 of the Page One podcast, the podcast that chats to writers of all kinds, uh, authors, screenwriters, journalists, comedians, comic writers, video game writers, about their writing process, how they got into the industry and where we try and get as many hints and tips from them as possible. Uh, I'm Marco and regular listeners will also be expecting to hear Tarek, but uh, unfortunately he wasn't able to record this intro section or the outro section of the podcast so it's just me but he is in the interview part of the podcast with this week's guest and it is a great guest we've got on this week Uh, we are chatting with mr philip gwyn jones who is the author of uh, the nathan sutherland series of books which are all set in venice Uh, the first book was the venetian game and the latest book in the series is the venetian legacy now uh, as we hear from Philip he never really had ambitions to be a writer and indeed came to writing quite late on after he was made redundant from his job in Edinburgh and decided with his partner to move to Venice and it was there after writing a blog that he suddenly decided to start trying to write uh, thrillers and he's gone on to have great success with those. So it's a really fun chat that we have with Philip, so I won't hold it up anymore. Uh, You'll hear a quick advert for our writer's notebook, the page one notebook, and then we'll get straight into the interview, and I'll be back at the end of the podcast just to let you know about next week's guest as well. The blank page. To some, it's terrifying, an obstacle to overcome. But we prefer to think of it as an opportunity, a blank canvas to be filled with all of the adventures and characters in our head. So how to overcome that fear? Well, we all know the best advice for a writer is write. Seriously, get words on the page and more will follow. But what about later, when you start trying to pull those threads of what you've written together? What about the character you wrote about way back at the start? Who was she again? What was she carrying? And where did she leave the MacGuffin that she now really needs in the third act? Think about all those top thrillers you like to read. Or that amazing drama you just watched. What did they all have in common? Structure and planning. As aspiring writers ourselves, we've tried many different methods to try and organise all the thoughts about the stories we want to tell. We've been there searching for a piece of scrap paper to note something down, or making a quick note on our phone in between meetings. Or sometimes we'll make a note in whatever notebook we're carrying, or a document on our laptop so we don't forget that great idea. Let's be honest, it can all be a bit messy and it's easy to lose track of everything. And that's when we realise it's not just a story that needs structure and planning, but the way we gather all of our thoughts about it as well. And so we made Page One. Page One is more than just another notebook. It's a place to put down all your ideas for your latest project, divided into easy-to-use sections that will help you plan your story, so that when that blank page comes calling, you're ready to answer. And then afterwards, once it's written, we realised you need to plan how to let people read it, so we included a section relating to submissions. Each one is designed for one project, whether you want to write a book, screenplay, a comic or any other kind of story. We truly believe that when you use it, it will help you get to the main event, writing your story. So we hope this helps. We can't wait to read what you come up with. And remember, every story starts with page one. Did you always want to be a writer? Because I know that you worked in IT for a good number of years. 
yeah, I ended up in IT kind of by accident. Did I always want to be a writer? I suppose when I was at school, the things I was best at were subjects like English, English literature, history, drama. And at one point I thought, maybe I'd quite like to be an actor, but everybody told me that wasn't really a job which which you did, which normal people did. Mm-hmm. And the same thing was very, very much true of writing. It wasn't a job which regular people did. Um, and I was pretty good at computer science, and so I, I went into that and travelled a lot because of it. I didn't really write very much um, beyond a couple of fanzine articles back in the 1980s. <laughs> I remember one uh, during the, the student holidays, uh, my friends and I, we started a role-playing fanzine called Arbalest, which was for players of Dungeons and Dragons uh-huh. and Call of Cthulhu. And I, my first ever published piece was a review of a Hawkwind concert, which I wrote in the style of Michael Moorcock. Um, it's a very rare piece now. I imagine probably not much more than a dozen people ever saw it. I don't think it was, I think it's pretty good actually. <laughs> um, that, that was the last thing I wrote for over 20 years, probably. Wow. Um, yeah, the, the, the difference then was moving to Venice. Mm-hmm. Um, why did we move to Venice? Um, my wife and I had settled down to get sensible long-term jobs, you know, proper pension, security, and that meant we found ourselves working for a large Scottish bank during the economic crisis. And we both lost our jobs around about the same time. And this genuinely happened. I was having a conversation with a man in a pub who told me about how he was leaving to go to teach English as a foreign language in Spain. Mm-hmm. And I said, you can do that. That's a job. He says, yes. <laughs> and I went home and I told my wife that um, I've met a man in a pub and he's going to Spain to teach English. What if we went to Venice and taught English? And I thought she would say, yeah, you put the water <laughs> in it next time or whatever. She said, maybe we do this. And, and we did. And over the course of working out quite long periods of redundancy, we arranged pretty much everything. We sold the apartment, we arranged to sell the car, we got rid of so much stuff and we did this intensive English language course and we moved to Venice with 10 suitcases and not much more and started pretty much over again. Wow. How does this relate to writing? Yeah, well, how does it relate to writing? I was keeping a blog. Right. Um, on the project, as I called it, because it was a way to keep in touch with people back home, you know, so they'd know how we were getting on. Uh, and after about a year and a half, I'd written over 100,000 words, and I thought I could put this into one of these self-published books that everyone's talking about. You know, I looked to create space and things like that. And I put it out as a, as a self-published book, and it sold reasonably well, you know, for a first attempt. It didn't look professional. I hadn't got a cover designer or hadn't had it professionally edited, all the things you're not supposed to do. But it sold reasonably well. I mean, probably sold about 3,000 copies across two formats, which wasn't bad. And then one day I got a a letter from an agent saying that um, he really loves Italy, really loved Venice, and I really love your book. What are you doing now? And my wife said to me, "Um, look, don't sound too enthusiastic, you know, give it a bit of time. And so I Gave it until after lunch, probably, and then I <laughs> And I wasn't really working on anything, but I did have an idea for a crime novel based on 
certain experiences I'd had in Venice and certain things I'd seen in Venice. Um, because I didn't want to write a second volume of Reminiscences of Venice because I, I got 20,000 words into that and was finding it boring. But I did have this idea of a crime novel. And after that, I went to the standard process with my agent. Great, send me three chapters, send me the whole thing. He liked it, placed it with Constable. We had to wait quite a while for publication because, you know, um, publishers have their lists organized so yeah. far in advance. It took 18 months to publication, but I didn't care. I was prepared to wait. And that was it, basically. That's how I got into writing again. I always say it was uh, the city, really, was an inspiration. I mean, that, that that's incredible, though, that, you know, you didn't have that that sort of... Uh, I mean, that's a unique route. You almost didn't think, oh, I'm going to be a writer, but an agent comes no. to you and says, do you want yeah. to write? That, that's amazing. I know it's not supposed to happen like that. <laughs> I, I was incredibly fortunate, you know, it fell into the hands of the right man at the right time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And was the was the agent that, that that you have was he a British agent or was he someone based over in Italy? No, no, his name's John Beaton, and he now lives in Edinburgh. All oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's yeah. Represents other people like um, Shirley MacKaye, the Scottish writer, for example. So. <laughs> <laughs> and do you do you still write, work and write then, or do you have you have you managed? To um, well, you know, I, we came to teach English, um, and it turned out I really enjoyed it, and so I do teach now, but part time, because when I was writing my first book, The Venetian Game, it was finding time to write, which was a difficult thing, because at that point I was working in a private language school. You know, perfectly good place, nice people that I worked with, and I enjoyed the job. The trouble is it was split shifts. So I'd be maybe teaching business English in the morning, and then have a few hours off, and then do after-school classes, and then a few hours off, and then do evening classes. So I was constantly on the go, never really finding much time just to settle down and write. So that first book was a, a late-at-night book, I'd call it, yeah. Now I'm very lucky. I work part-time teaching in a state school, which means I work the mornings and the rest of the day is then free. So, yeah, I'm very lucky to have a, a work schedule like that, absolutely. And the, the Venetian Game, which which was the first in the sort of Nathan Sutherland series, um, it, it was quite a, you know, it got I think it got chosen by Waterstones as, as Thriller of the Month and, and things like yeah. that. I mean, and, how did that feel? You can't plan for that. <laughs> I tell you what, I remember when it happened because it had been out for about a year and my second book was due to come out in two or three months time. And we were negotiating for another two book contract. And, um, I noticed I was on Amazon one day and I noticed, hang on, the cover of the Venetian games changed. So I got in touch with my agent who got in touch with my editor and she said, uh, we can't really say anything about this just yet. <laughs> and then I finished my classes on Friday. And um, my final class on Friday, I was called my lucky class because nice things seemed to happen after teaching that final class. <laughs> I got back to the staff room and I was checking my phone and there was an email from my editor saying, I hope you're sitting down, but we don't know how this has happened because <laughs> it's never happened to us before. <laughs> but uh, you're, you're thriller of the month at Waterstones. And which means new print run, new cover, front of house display in every shop. 
I'm not changed absolutely everything. Yeah. Oh, and by the way, we're going to give you another two-book contract as well. <laughs> I remember I was sort of running through the corridors of this school looking for somebody I could hug. And eventually, <laughs> I, found, eventually I found the cleaning lady, who I vaguely knew, <laughs> and babbled something in half Italian, half English. <laughs> <laughs> I mean that that is the sort of uh, yes serendipitous sort of thing that, that just, just changed yeah. changes everything. I'm sure. Fell into the hands of the right person again at the right time, mm-hmm. and I don't think he could plan for that. My editor still doesn't know how that happened, you know, because the book had been out for almost a year. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, and when you when you first went out there and you, you got you got this this kind of approach from the agent saying, you know, what else have have, have you got in the pipeline? You thought, well. I could write a thriller. What, what was it about? Why did you get drawn to the thriller? What was it about that genre that that made you want to write about it? It was probably the genre I always enjoyed the most, I suppose. I'd always read that. I mean, when I was about 13 or 14, uh, my auntie gave me a big stack of Agatha Christie's, and I can still see those wonderful 70s covers and things like that. And then I got into people like Chandler and Hammett because I was really into 1940s American film noir and things like that and then 1970s Italian giallo and things like mm-hmm. that. And so it's always a genre I had an interest in, yeah. As to how the book came about, um, there's a, there's a, there used to be, certainly in Venice at least, there was one day a year, which was like Doors Open Day um, back in the UK, where banks and various institutions would open up and they'd show you around. And I went around the archive of a bank in Campo Manin and... The archive is wonderful, you know, all these great wood wood panelled, you mm-hmm. know, bookcases and things like that with maps and scrolls and little statues, artworks. So this guy putting on these white gloves and taking out this prayer book, which he said was illustrated by Leonardo Bellini. And he brought it back from a, a private dealer in Hungary in his jacket. I thought, wow, fantastic. Leonardo Bellini. Something so small, which you could carry so very, very easily. Mm -hmm. What if it wasn't Leonardo Bellini, who nobody's really heard of? What if it's by Giovanni Bellini? Wow, that'd be something, wouldn't it? And so I I started to build the idea then about um, what's going to be like a heist or a crime novel based around somebody stealing this antique prayer book illustrated by Giovanni Bellini. Mm -hmm. Then I started thinking, well, who's the protagonist going to be? If you write a crime novel in Venice and your protagonist is a cop, everybody is going to compare you to Donald Aon, <laughs> written almost 30 books. You're probably not going to do it better than her. And, I, and, and of course, I didn't really know anything about how the, the Italian criminal justice system or anything like that. Private eye, you can't have a private eye in Venice. It doesn't make sense. <laughs> You could have won in Mestre, but I didn't think people would want to read a thriller set in yeah. Mestre because nobody wants to really go there. But, but then one of my um, business students was the honorary consul for Thailand. And every time I arrived with a lesson plan, he'd be telling me about things, that trouble that people had managed to get themselves into and what his job involved, sorting out stolen passports. Maybe they've been in trouble with the police or things like that. And I thought, eh, that would be an interesting job. And if you were the honorary consul, you would know certainly people in the police. Mm-hmm. You would know people in churches throughout the city, people at different levels of Venetian society, doctors, medics, things like that. And I thought, yeah, he'd have all the connections, really, to be able to work as an amateur investigator 
without actually having to be a policeman. Yeah. I'm making the British honorary consul. I can write from the point of view of a foreigner in Venice, and I can make that sound convincing in a way that perhaps I couldn't do with an actual Venetian. So, yeah. again, that was, a great, that was a great bit of luck, yeah. I mean, the other great stroke of luck I had was teaching somebody from the Guardia di Finanza, which is the art crime department. Um, and for 12 weeks, I taught him English, and I tried to get the conversation around to art crime in every city. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, yeah, it's, a, it's quite a unique uh, protagonist to have, but as you say, it's... It, it, it's someone that's at the centre of all these things, so we'd have all these connections. So it, it does make sense. And and the other thing your books are good at is sort of making the city itself uh, almost a character in in the books. It, you know, certainly, obviously, I'm very familiar with Venice, so I can picture it much easier. But I think for anyone reading it, it really you know it is like another character as i say i mean how important do you think it is to get the details of what you're writing about the city correct or you just try to generate that atmosphere when you do something like that you've definitely got to try and make the city a character certainly a city like venice i mean one of my Mm -hmm. favorite crime novels is the maltese falcon but you get no real sense of san francisco as a place you know, Hannah gets away with it because his dialogue is great, his characters are great, and the story is very, very clever. Um, but people who buy books about Venice, they want to feel something of Venice in mm. there. Absolutely, they do. The other thing is that people who buy books about Venice are passionate about the city. They adore the city. Yeah. But if you make mistakes, somebody will say, I think if you turn left out of Cali de Vembo, and I think I'm right in this, you will find yourself... Not on the street, which <laughs> yeah. which you mentioned. So you do have to try and get that right. I mean, I've invented buildings um, for obvious reasons, um, but I mean, I usually make acknowledgement of that in the back, saying mm-hmm. that I had to invent a church, otherwise I'm saying that this priest is colluding with the mafia. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And and when you when you first wrote this, when you were saying that you were kind of writing it at night, you were working most of the day, etc. So imagine your writing routine at that point was kind of just whenever you could find the time. But now you've settled down a little bit, you know, you've, you're kind of focusing more on the writing. What's your routine like now? Is it like a kind of, do you have the same slot every day, the same hours you work, like a nine to five job almost? I don't, it's not always the same slot. I wish, I'm still trying to work out what actually find, what actually works best for me, to be honest. And I'm still not quite sure if early morning or late at night is best for me. Quite often what happens is that late at night I'll be writing something and, you know, I'm, I'm keeping a journal as I'm going through and I'll write, yes, great idea. And then I'll get up the next morning and read it through and no, terrible idea. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't quite worked out if I'm a morning or a night person as yet. Um, the, the big difference perhaps was book three, um, The Venetian Masquerade. Um, which is based around um, the hunt for a, a lost opera score by Claudio Monteverdi. And so I wrote most of that in the library, at the Marciano Library in Venice and at the Quirini Stampalia Library, because I wanted to get, you know, a proper feel for the place. Mm-hmm. Okay, If Nathan was there going through old manuscripts, I wanted to be there as well. So I was there every day for four hours, maybe listening to Monteverdi on continuous loop on headphones. Um, and I actually really enjoyed that as a way to work. Um, it was it was kind of unique to that book. It, I don't think it would really have worked in um, 
for the others since then. And besides since, and I've actually got a small study where I can work now, so I haven't done that. But it was a nice way to work. Yeah, it sounds it. And and are you someone that um, plans out your novels bef- in great detail before you start, or do you sort of have the idea and the sort of main points and then just see where it takes you? Right. I'll be absolutely honest here. Book one was kind of a happy accident. I think it probably is for a lot of Book two, I thought I'd done it once. I can do it again. And so I wrote completely seat of pants, submitted the manuscript, and my editor said, there are some good things in here, <laughs> and there are some not quite so good things. <laughs> so if you take out perhaps these words and replace them with better ones, and send it in again, we can talk about it again. So book two is really book 2.5. Right, okay. And ever since then, I've always thought, don't just get into it and start writing. Have some idea about where it's going. I mean, it will change, but there's always, I've always got a final scene in mind, mm-hmm. a couple of stages along the way, and it gives you some direction. So it's not totally planned. I've never succeeded in writing a complete plan that's, I've absolutely stuck to. But I've always had some idea where the story has been going since then. And I'm thinking all the time, clarity, all the time, clarity. What is this chapter for? Mm -hmm. You might love it. I mean, I cut two entire chapters out of book two, which I thought were really good, really funny. My editor says, what are they there for? Mm -hmm. They don't add anything. They don't move the character on. It's just you thinking it's funny. Yeah. Other readers might not think it's as funny as you do. <laughs> <laughs> and how do you feel when you get these notes back from your editor and you're going through the editing process? You know, is that quite is it quite a fun process seeing the the book evolve, or is that the kind of part of the book of the writing process that you really don't like? No, I love it. Actually, it's possibly that possibly the part I like the most. Oh, nice. Yeah, you've you know the first draft. I don't really like doing the first draft particularly. I know some writers do, and they can throw it down in two months, and that's it. Mine take longer than that. I do enjoy editing, mm-hmm. going back over something, um, because I don't edit as I work, and going back, looking at the whole thing and thinking, ah, this bit is better than I thought, and oh, this bit, which I thought was good, actually, isn't that great. But then you've got something you can work with, you know, you're mm-hmm. just taking the rough edges off, adding in some extra detail, what works, what doesn't work. Mm, I like that. Does it work? Is it necessary? No, then it's got to come out. So it's a it's a part of the process I I enjoy the most probably yeah. And do you feel obviously with the first one, um, it, it sort of came about through that happy accident as you said. But since then, I think you've had deals and presumably they're on deadlines that you have to have the book in. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, do you feel a pressure from that, or does that help sort of um, give you some clarity about what what you're having to write? I probably did find it. Well, actually, you know, my wife would say, "No, you're, you're at that stage, aren't you? Where you think it's a disaster, it's going to, it's going to crash and burn. It will be all right." Um, but I do that. I go through a period every book. I'm sure every writer does actually. Around about sixty percent of the way through, mm-hmm. and you start thinking that you know, should you go back to your agent or your editor and say, "Yeah, you know that other idea like him." <laughs> well, <laughs> I know we're halfway to the deadline now, but maybe we could do something with that after all. <laughs> yeah, there's always a point about halfway through I get the horrors and you just have to convince yourself you know for every book keep a diary and go back and look at last year's diary and you'll see you thought exactly the same about the previous mm-hmm. year's book 
and that's that's immensely reassuring. Yeah, I mean, it's true. Like, I think nearly every guest we've had on says there is that period where you you hit, um, yeah, sort of between as you say, thirty to sixty percent of the way through the book, yeah. and suddenly you start thinking this isn't this isn't yeah. working. I need to I need to go. But I think if you get through that, then you and you get to the end, then yeah. you can. You just, you just kind yeah. of got to fight your way through that. Mm-hmm. You know, Neil Green has great advice on this. It is. You wait for inspiration. You might be a great poet, but you will never be a writer. Yeah. You've got to get your thousand words down every day because when they're down, you can do something with them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. That's absolutely true. Um, and your uh, let's turn to your latest book then, which is the Venetian Legacy. Um, mm-hmm. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that book, and then we can and we can chat about it. Right, the Venetian Legacy. How did this start? Um, over the previous four books, I've been building up the relationship between Nathan Sutherland and his partner, Federica. And I, I don't like these series which go on forever with, you know, oh, will they or won't they? I thought, no, no, they're going to get married. Um, because that reminds me of, you know, um, Hamlet's The Thin Man series, which I always loved. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, funny people fighting crime with too many cocktails. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought, well, I'll set it on, the, on their honeymoon. And I think if you're writing a series set in Italy, at some point people are going to expect you to do a novel which is kind of dealing with organised crime, which is dealing with the M-word mafia. And I always thought I wasn't going to do that. You know, there are plenty of books dealing with it. But then I found out that there actually was, is and was a Venetian mafia, the Mala del Brenta, which was kind of, it happened... They came about in a very strange way. Um, during the 1960s, 1970s, 1980s, Sicilian mafiosi were sent into internal exile in Italy. The idea being if you removed them from their immediate sphere of influence, they could do less harm. So mafiosi from Sicily ended up in prisons in the Veneto. What happened then is that everybody wanted to learn from them. And so the individual gangs, the various gangs in the Veneto at that time, like Clan Jostra, um, Sandona cartel, they all became absorbed into one single organization um, under a guy called Angel Face Maniero. And it was defined by the government as a mafia-like organization. And I thought, there's a lot of really interesting stuff to explore here. It will make the story a little bit less cozy and a little bit less grounded, a little bit more grounded, perhaps. And I thought that was something that was that was worth tackling. The second thing I wanted to do was to set it on the island of Perestrina, uh, which is this thin spit of land which separates the lagoon from the Adriatic Sea. It's about 20 kilometers in length. It's never much more than 100 meters in width. Extraordinary, beautiful little place. But I thought, I'll send them there on honeymoon, and that will mean that for the first time, Nathan is actually an outsider. Mm-hmm. Okay, he actually is a tourist. He's actually on holiday. He can't go into bars and shops, and people will know him. So he was actually very much feeling more isolated this time, and that was another element I wanted to get into there. And when you're when you're writing these books over a, a period, and you know that you're going to be writing another one, do you ever mm-hmm. have a sort of longer term plan for Nathan and Federica? You know, you say you wanted them to get married, but you know, have you got a sort of arc that you're thinking of in the future or is it very much a book at a time that you take it? It's very much a book at a time. I'd like to say I had a 10-book plan or a 10-book arc. I don't really have a plan to that degree. I mean, I've got timelines and 
background notes and things like that, so I don't paint myself into a corner mm-hmm. or do something that contradicts something. Um, it is, yeah, it is. It's not really a, a long-term plan. I mean, <laughs> I've said to people, well, the length of the series is kind of governed by the lifespan of Gramsci the Cat. <laughs> because Gramsci the Cat came into the first book because Nathan's on his own in the first book mm-hmm. and he needed somebody to talk to in the flat. So I put the cat there um, instead of having him talking to himself. And he, the cat immediately became the most popular character. <laughs> I'm spending all this time on plotting and on dialogue. It's <laughs> a bloody cat that's the most popular. More cat. a cat. <laughs> so people say, well, you know, how old is he? And in that world. So I've got a timeline for Gramsci the cat, and, you know, indoor cats live to a good age, so there's, there's plenty of models left of them. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. And and do you ever, is it just um, sort of things that you, you read or in the paper or come across characters that you meet in venice or whatever that that sort of are you are you constantly sort of putting stuff in the back of your head or in a notebook or something saying that could that could be that could be something that crops up when you walk around you might notice a feature on a building or a painting you didn't know about that's in a church or something like that or if you're reading the newspaper every day and there's you know there's there's so much stuff that comes up i mean there was a great story the other day about um the state broadcaster rai had a collection of um, of paintings at their main office in Rome. And over the course of 20 or 30 years, every one of these paintings had been stolen and replaced with forgery, which was only noticed when one of them was taken for a clean. And oh, this, is, this isn't the genuine article. And they, they went back, the archivist went back and looked at every other painting, and they'd all been stolen by the same group of people over the course of 30 years. And my thoughts were, that's what a a brilliant story, yeah, absolutely. Really. Um, and secondly, I thought if I wrote that, people would say that wouldn't happen. <laughs> no, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's actually past the statute of limitations, so nobody's going to prison for it. Wow! Um, but kind of so thought. someone just openly just showing up all these paintings in their house, <laughs> just being like, Wait. <laughs> "Yeah, exactly." <laughs> and uh, but you, you're also a member of the Society of Authors, the Crime Writers Association, the Welsh Crime Writing Collective. Uh, mm-hmm. Is this stuff is this stuff that's really helpful in terms of connections, in terms of marketing? Um, I think we should definitely join the Society of Authors because you know it is it is the union, it is the professional body, and I think you know they they do a lot of great work um, on you know the rights of writers, on supporting writers who may be in financial difficulty. They do a lot of good work for that and for your subs every year. I think it's well worth it. Um, the CWA are great if you're a crime writer, you get your monthly magazine. It's nice to it puts you in touch with other writers. The one I've actually found the most useful is Crime Company, the Welsh Crime Writing Collective, because they're relatively small in number. Okay, there's about there's thousands of members of the Society of Authors. Mm-hmm. There's over seven hundred, I think, in the CWA. There's about forty of us who write perhaps full time in Crime Company which means we're a very close-knit organisation and we have a a much stronger relationship with each other in terms of helping each other out, promoting each other's books. We did an online festival this year, which will be physical next year in Aberystwyth. So there's a real great sense of um, community and support which comes through that. 
you know, we're not all based in Wales, not all writing fiction set in Wales, but we identify as being Welsh mm-hmm. writers. But that's the thing behind it. So I would actually say, you know, if, you, if you're starting out, yeah, join a professional body, try and find a group of like-minded writers. Um, it's it's a great support. It really is. Yeah, because it can be quite a solitary thing, obviously, being a writer. And it is, yeah. And I mean, especially for people like, you know, I'm based in Italy. Mm-hmm. Um, I know a couple of other writers in the city. There's people like Gregory Dowling. He, he, he's a Venice-based writer. Roberto Tiraboski. Uh, and a few others, um, but you do feel quite isolated and quite cut off because, you know, most of my books sell in Britain. Mm-hmm. So you do feel that slightly removed from that. So it's uh, being part of a being part of a writer's group, I think, can be very useful. And being based in Italy, you know, I, presumably you can't, or do you have, do you come over for like, obviously not in the past year, but you come over for a book launch and things like that? Yeah. Do you, do you sort of spend time here promoting your books and then yeah, go back? Yeah, I've done that in the past. I mean, mm-hmm. last year, I mean, let's be honest, last year I was one of the lucky ones. I could continue working from home. Mm-hmm. Um, I had other projects going on as well. I was teaching online as well. So for me, lockdown was okay. I know I was very lucky that way. But so much stuff got cancelled. You know, um, yeah. Venetian Gothic came out. We had events lined up for that. Um, my first book was coming out in Germany, so I had events in Leipzig and Marburg arranged, and within the space of three weeks. Oh god! Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, as I said, I was I was one of the lucky ones. It was my fourth book. It wasn't a, it wasn't my debut. And I thought about what about those people who were being book of the month in Waterston? Yeah, now? yeah, and absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, do you think events like that? Do, do you think? There, there is pro- there has been a permanent change in the way that these things are done. Do you think there will be more sort of virtual events even going forward uh, into the future? I think that's certainly an idea, and they can work well. It's not quite the same. No. You, know, you, you like to be there, you know, in the pub with readers and, and other writers. Um, when it comes to selling books, possibly, if you're actually at a live event, yeah. But it's probably more likely to buy a book after a live event mm-hmm. to get it signed than they are after a virtual event. But all this stuff, I mean, it, if it's not so much about selling books, it's about making connections and meeting readers. Mm-hmm. And if you look at it that way, then the Zoom event is, is pretty good. Yeah. And if they're done well, if they're moderated well, they're great. And, and w- would you want to ever try writing Nathan in a different format? Would you, you, know, like, would you ever want to tr- try writing a script or anything like that? Oh, I see. Oh, my goodness. I've never done that. Um, and so I'd need to work with somebody else on that. Um, I'd very much like to see him on the radio yeah. TV or film, but, you know, this is a series that's set, that's set in Venice. Venice is expensive for filming. Yeah. I know you had um, David Bishop on a few weeks ago talking mm-hmm. about Cesare Aldo yeah. and City of Vengeance and himself. Well, it would be really expensive to film. Yeah, well... Filming in Venice would be expensive as well, but we can hope for it. You never know. There was the Brunetti series, which mm-hmm. was big in Germany, for example. So these things happen, yeah. Mm-hmm. And what's what's next then? I mean, are you are you wanting to continue with the Nathan Sutherland series? Are you wanting to write a non-Italy based? Well, no, that's an interesting one. I mean, the feedback from my publisher at the moment is stick with Nathan. That's what readers want. That's okay. I enjoy writing him. I enjoy sitting down every day and spending some time in his head. It's good fun. Mm. If it wasn't fun, I wouldn't do it. 
Um, so I, my attitude at the moment is very much as long as people want to read these books and as long as I'm enjoying them, I'm very happy to continue with those. Side projects. Yeah, maybe, maybe if I ever, I, I always think I'll have more time than I actually do. I've never quite managed that yet, but there are, um, yeah, there are other things I'd like to try. Maybe, you know, set in other cities in Italy, maybe set back in Wales, maybe not using them the first person as a narrative device, mm-hmm. something different like that. Do you think now you're, you're kind of Venice bound for life, or is that, will you ever come back to Wales, or are you, are you done? Oh, my goodness, it's difficult. I mean, I haven't been back in Wales for 18 months because it's not been possible. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I certainly don't imagine us leaving Italy. Italy feels very much like home now. Um, I don't know, yeah, Italy has, has problems, of course, but it's, it's, it's a good place to be. I can't imagine us leaving. But then again, I was almost 20 years in Edinburgh and I never imagined leaving there. So mm. I, I've given up on this. <laughs> never say never. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. You, need, you need to uh, get, get Nathan going to the Pierluigi Penzo in, in the next book, I think. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, we'll have to do that at some point. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> now they're in Serie A. Yeah, you have I mean, to. that's exciting, yes. I mean, what, what an achievement. Yeah. What an achievement. Absolutely. And, you know, the, the tragedy was, you know, it was, it, we couldn't be there for no, any other. Absolutely. The last, the last time I was going to matches, it was the season where we, we only survived in Serie A B because Palermo had really big financial irregularities. And yeah. After, yeah that, that season finished in the courts rather than on the pitch. But, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, is no. This, is this some kind of sport? Yeah, Tarek, Tarek is not a Tarek is not a football fan, so he doesn't understand what we're talking about right <laughs> no, now. No, exactly. <laughs> what was the last book that you read? Uh, the last book I read, Abia Mukherjee, Death in the East, and it's wonderful. Great, lovely writer, full of admiration for. And uh, what about the last film that you watched? The last film I saw, uh, oh my goodness, I I great interest in horror films. The last proper one I saw, uh, Dario Argento's, was it Phenomena? Was it The Bird of the, Bird with the Crystal Plumage? Um, it's a 1970s Italian thriller. Um, I, I dearly admire Dario Argento's work of the 70s and 80s. It was his first thriller, and I think it's it's brilliant, yeah. Excellent. And uh, what, what's the last TV show that you watched or are watching? Ah, last night uh, we finished the Kominsky Method. Oh, oh I've not seen the third yeah. season, but yeah, I enjoyed the first two, definitely. The third season, bear in mind it wouldn't be like the first two, mm-hmm. for one very obvious reason. Mm-hmm. Um, but And it's only six episodes. Give it two episodes, it gets back into its stride again. And, you know, it's, it's a roll call of Hollywood legends, basically. Yeah, no. It, it, yeah, we've it, heard a lot of good things about this. It was show, really it's good. It's on my list to yeah. watch. Yeah, no, it's great. It's great. Um, and the, the very last thing we always do is a quick fire, either or, and um, I would say there's no right answer apart from one. And uh, <laughs> looking at the list, what we have here, I actually could let Marco take the first one because I feel I might completely butcher the pronunciation. Okay, uh, uh, Aurelio Zane or Inspector Montalbano? Oh... Oh, Montalbano. Yeah. Um, the character, his love of the good things in life, yeah. um, the Sicilian atmosphere. They're, they're a wonderful series. We don't like Dipton as well, but um, yeah, Montalbano was, that was a good series. Excellent. Uh, TV or cinema? Cinema. Definitely cinema. Always loved it. 
Um, and I watch more films than TV, yeah. Um, well, uh, you kind of alluded to this earlier, but uh, Night Owl or Early Bird? Ah, uh, more of a night owl, yeah. I've tried being one. I get up early every morning in the hope of, you know, Getting my writing done by ten o'clock, it never works. You know? yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, fancy restaurant or a takeaway? Now I love cooking, as readers of the book will know, and so I will go for fancy restaurant because it's a wee bit of a treat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we were saying during during lockdown, it was so nice towards the end there when you could actually have a dinner and someone else would make it for you and would take the plates away, and you weren't having to do it yourself every night. It was yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, when our local restaurant opened up the takeaways after ten weeks, and said, look at the takeaway, fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> so we don't care, you know. <laughs> um, and and the last one, uh, real book or e-book? I'm sorry, Tariq, real book. Uh, <laughs> you had that pause. I was like, I thought you were going to come <laughs> in for me there. be the one. I'm sorry, I do appreciate <laughs> the value of the e-book. Um, they are useful. But I'm one of these weird people. Oh, it smells like a book. Fantastic. Yes. Oh, you're not one of these. Yeah, I'm one of those, yeah, one of these weird people. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm one of those weird people as yeah. well. Well, thanks very much to Philip for uh, chatting with us there. One thing I probably should clarify there, uh, towards the end, I mentioned that he should get Nathan to go to the Pierluigi Penzo. Now, that's the stadium of Venezia FC, who are my football team. Uh, And Tarek, of course, not being a sports fan, didn't know that. So I thought I should clarify that just in case people didn't know about that. But as Philip said, The Venetian Legacy is the latest book in the Nathan Sutherland series and is available in all good bookshops just now. So please do go and grab a copy of that. We'll also put a link to where you can buy that in the podcast description. But looking forward to next week, we've got another great guest on the podcast. Uh, We're joined by Imran Mahmood whose latest thriller, I Know What I Saw, is just out. Now, Imran, if you don't know, is a practising barrister with almost 30 years' experience fighting cases in court. And his first novel, You Don't Know Me, was chosen by Simon Mayo as a BBC Radio 2 book club choice for 2017 and longlisted for the Theakston Crime Novel of the Year and the CWA Gold Dagger and is currently being adapted for the screen. It's a really uh, interesting chat that we had with Imran, uh, talking about how he brings his experiences as a lawyer and a barrister into his fiction writing, and chatting about the sort of themes that he wants to bring into his novels. So I hope you're able to join us for that one. Uh, Before I go, if you enjoyed the podcast, then we'd love it if you were able to take a couple of seconds to give us a rating on Apple Podcasts and even leave a small review. That really helps us climb the rankings and continue to get great guests on the podcast. And as Tarek would always say, you can always send us a tweet in the Twitter machine at right underscore gear or drop us an email at podcast at rightgear.co.uk if you've got anything to say about us or our guests. Otherwise, have a great week and we'll see you next episode.